All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open up God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction on our study this morning. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. As our Lord prayed the night before he went to the cross, that we might be sanctified by your word. Your word is truth. And Father, we pray that as we reflect upon what you have revealed in your word today, that you would challenge us, that the implications and application of this passage would be clear to us, that God the Holy Spirit would help us to see how we need to uh, further be transformed in our thinking, that we may reflect the image of Christ in our lives, for that is the purpose of our sanctification, is to grow more like him and less like our sin nature. And Father, we pray that you will open our the eyes of our soul to the truth of your word today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Matthew chapter 25 today. Last week we finished Matthew 24. Some of you may have thought we would never do that. We are now in Matthew chapter 25 in the second of three key parables. The theme of each of these is really this idea I have put in the title for the lesson to be prepared. And this is the parable of the ten virgins or the parable of the ten bridesmaids. And so we must come to understand what is going on in this particular passage. So as we do so, I want to address seven key points here. First of all, terms of review, and this is going to be a little more extensive today. It seems like every time I, I start preparing and I go back and I read from Matthew 24, 1, all the way through the end of 24, I see little things and, and recognize little things and connections. And at the same time, I am reading and interacting with uh, numerous uh, scholars and commentators and theologians and friends who have worked through this or are working through this, and many of them have different positions. I don't just say, okay, I'm going to take this position and try to prove it. I truly work through the text inductively, looking at all of the different views, trying to understand their arguments, even to the point of maybe taking a long road trip to spend a couple of hours at lunch with somebody to pick their brain. And this last week, I had the opportunity on Monday to spend time with Tommy Ice, and I also had time on Friday to spend a couple hours with the Frucht over in San Antonio, Dr. Fruchtenbaum. And they don't agree on this passage, so it's fun to sit down and say, okay, 
help me understand why you believe what you believe. Have you ever heard me say that before? That we need to know why we believe what we believe. What are the exegetical reasons? And at the same time, because we have a couple of people in the congregation who are taking courses at the uh, Dallas Seminary campus, and I get feedback from them, one of the things I try to teach them to always do when there is some sort of questionable statement uh, by a professor, even if it's not questionable, even if it's accurate, you ask the same question. What is your biblical support? You can't just assert that the Bible means things, although sometimes in sermons that's what you do from summary. You can't go into extensive detail on every uh, every passage. It may surprise you that I don't go into extensive detail on every passage. I give you the results of the extensive study I do. So when we do a review... Part of the reason I do that is because you haven't had your brain in Matthew 24 or 25 in seven days, in some cases 14 days or 21 days. There are visitors here, and also it helps us to bring back and reinforce what we have been learning. So what's going on in this passage? What have we learned so far? Second is what is the connection to the previous parable and the one to follow? There's three parables here. At the, end, the parable of the righteous and wicked servant, which we looked at last week, and then it's followed by the parable of the talents. And actually, after that, there is a, a, a teaching, an instruction uh, from Jesus about the sheep and the goat judgments. How do these things connect? One of the problems we run into in a lot of Bible study is that people will, and theologians especially, will go in and isolate these parables and not work through verse by verse in terms of the broad context as we've been doing in Matthew. As a result, I think some of these internal connections are missed. So what's the connection to the previous parable, the one to follow? Third, who do the ten virgins represent? You will get different views. Some people think they relate to the church. Other people think they relate to the um, to Jews, uh, Israel. Who do they represent? Fourth, what's the distinction between the two groups of five? There are five who are prepared, five who are not prepared. That's part of the distinction. How are we to understand them? Are they representing two kinds of believers, carnal versus spiritual? Or are they representing unbelievers versus believers? And even more specific, are they representing unbelieving Gentiles and believing Gentiles in the tribulation or are they representing believing and unbelieving Jews in the tribulation? See, you didn't know there were so many issues. And that's just hitting the up, upper level. Fifth, what's the... Um, <clears throat> what is the... It should be... The fifth one should be what's the significance of the oil? What's the significance of the oil? I didn't get it changed on that slide from before. What's the significance of the oil? And then what is the uh, purpose of this parable? What is Jesus teaching? So we go back to the beginning, and just to remind you, the disciples asked, I believe it's two questions, that the second question is really is a two-parter, uh, indicating the same thing. What will be the sign of your coming? 
and the end of the age. The first question, when will these things be? The these things goes back to the, what Jesus, Jesus just said about the destruction of the temple. So they want to know, when's the temple going to come down? And number two, what's the sign of your coming in the end of the age? In Jewish eschatology, the, they just saw the present age which would end when the Messiah would come and establish his kingdom. So when they say, what's the sign of your coming? That word coming is parousia, which means your presence, not just your arrival, but your presence. So that's asking about when's the kingdom coming, because that ends the present age. They don't have an understanding of church age yet. That's still mystery doctrine. That hasn't been revealed yet. That's their question. So let's review a little bit what is going on here and what have we learned so far. Remember, the context is very Jewish. It has to do with the uh, coming of the kingdom, the coming of Messiah, his presence on the earth. It's not talking about the church. That question excludes that. Now, there are some that say, well, Jesus answers more, and so he brings the rapture in, but I don't think that really fits contextually, and we'll, we'll see a little bit about that as we have in the past. So the context is not the rapture. It's the second coming of Christ bringing his kingdom. And so because this is a Jewish context, it's not a church age context, we have to be consistent with what Jesus is teaching here. So, first thing to point out is that uh, this is the parable. Uh, is, it's all related to the parable of the fig tree. The parable of the fig tree, which indicates the general proximity of Messiah's coming, that this can be known. That's the point of it. So, if you look back at 2432 to 35, Jesus says, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. The point of this picture, this visual image that he creates, is that you can know the proximity, general proximity, of this coming. Not this specific day or hour, which he brings out several times, but if you see the signs, this is what he's going to say, that if you see the signs, those who see the signs, and that goes back to uh, verse 4 and the signs of the wars and rumors of wars, the um, that many will come in my name and say I am the Christ. Others, uh, they will. <clears throat> other things that happen are disease and pestilence, uh, famines, earthquakes. All of these things. That when you see these things, that that that's not talking about wars and famines and earthquakes. Now that's why I belabored that, because if it's these things now, then then when you get to this verse and it says the generation that sees these things will not pass away. Then you have a problem. So the parable of the fig tree uh, begins this <coughs> discussion that the general proximity of Messiah's coming can be known. So by looking at the fig tree, you can know if the leaves are starting to sprout that summer is near. That's the key word there is this word near. It's the Greek word ingus, which means can mean near in physical spatial proximity such as the front row is near to me, the back row is far from me, or it can refer to near in time. 
near in time, maybe something like lunch is near, breakfast is now far away, or dinner is further away, lunch is near, it's closer in time or proximity. That's the context here because we're talking about a chronology here of fall, I mean spring to summer, we're talking about time, so that's the idea here that this is talking about uh, they will be able to know that the coming of the kingdom is near in time by observing the signs. Now remember, those are not signs today. Those are signs within the tribulation period. So Jesus says in the analogy that you can know that summer is near, and then when he applies the analogy to what he's teaching, in verse 33 he says, so you also, when you see all these things, now that's going to be important, Know that it is near. So nearness in time is the point of the analogy. Nothing else is. When you read a parable, as we'll see as we get into the parable today, is that you have to let Jesus tell you what elements of the parable are to be interpreted and what it's trying to teach. Sometimes a parable has many elements, and people try to make every element mean something, and that often leads to interpretive problems. So let Jesus tell us what he's trying to illustrate. He will limit it often by a statement that he makes. So that's all that he's talking about. The leaves don't mean anything. The budding doesn't mean anything. The branches don't mean anything. Only the fact that you see something, you know summer's near, and that's the point is this uh, chronological comparison. In verse 34, as well as in 33, I didn't highlight that, but in verse 33 it says, so you also when you see what? Some of these things. No, all these things. When you've seen all these things that he's been describing from back in verse 4 all the way up to, to 31, you know that his coming, the presence of the kingdom, is near. And he says then in verse 34, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. So when he says this in verse 34, he's emphasizing that that generation that sees the signs within the tribulation period. So what can you conclude from that? He's not talking about us because we're not in the tribulation. So we don't go around looking for signs. We're not date setting. We're not like the guy who wrote his book, 88 Reasons the Rapture is Going to Occur in 88. And then when it didn't, he wrote a book called 89 Reasons Why It's Going to Occur in 1989. After that, he quit. So the generation, and, and the point that I'm making from this, which is so crucial, is from this point on, Jesus is really talking to that generation, that generation of Jewish believers that are living through the tribulation. He's not talking to you directly to you and I because, um, or to you and me, because we don't see those things. He's only addressing that generation. So, then, second thing we point out here is that that generation is warned that they can only know that the time is near. But, 
They cannot know the precise day or hour. Now, some people say, and I think it's, it's, it's an obvious answer, well, wait a minute, if you can count down uh, the 1,260 days from the abomination of desolation to the end or the uh, time from the signing of the peace treaty to the end, but maybe they don't know the precise day or hour the treaty was signed or the precise day or hour that the abomination of desolation took place. So there's a clear statement here that Jesus is saying there is an uncertainty about the precise time the second coming will occur. So the generation is warned that by looking at the signs, they can know it's near, but they cannot know the day or the hour. In verse 36, he says, but of that day and hour, and that has to refer to the immediate context of of Jesus coming and his presence being known, uh, the sign that is mentioned of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory in 24, verse 30. Now, this verse then becomes the main proposition, which is then developed from this point to Matthew 25, 30. All the way through the end of 25, it's all developed out of this statement in verse 36 that of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. If no one knows, then what has to? You have to be prepared. You have to watch. And everything that flows from this point on is about being prepared and watching. Now, that relates to the generation of believers at the end of the tribulation, but it has an implication for us. And that is that we don't know when the rapture is going to occur either. So if they have a general idea of when the second coming is going to take place, and they need to watch and be prepared, then it follows a fortiori, or from a strong position, stronger argument, that they must, we must also watch and be prepared. Now we have to understand, what does it mean to be prepared? And we'll get to that. So... That generation, which is the, which he's specifically addressing, which is the tribulation generation of Jewish believers, are commanded to watch. And, and if you look at these contexts, he's talking about, specifically, he's talking to Jewish believers who are, who are living where? New York? Moscow? Kiev? No. In Jerusalem, because back earlier he said, when you see the abomination of desolation take place, then those of you who are in uh, Judah, Jerusalem and Judah flee to the mountains. Now, does that mean that, that those who are living somewhere else don't ha- can't make some sort of application? Not at all. He's speaking specifically, though, and giving specific instructions to a certain group of people. Now, that's important to understand because where we're going to go with the passage in a, in, a, in a few minutes. Okay, so there to watch, that's verse 42. 36 lays down the principle of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Jesus in his humanity is not given the responsibility or the, to reveal that information. And so in verse 42, notice in your Bibles how you really need to watch this in your Bibles and look at what your Bible says here and underline some things and draw some connections. Verse 36 is the beginning of the paragraph. How does the paragraph end? Look at verse 42. Watch, therefore, 
for you do not know what hour your Lord, your Lord is coming. See, verse 42 is the application of what is said in verse 36. Verses 37 to 41 are an illustration from the time of Noah related to those who were unprepared, were caught by surprise suddenly when it started to rain and Noah's ark started to lift off the ground. And they were uh, destroyed, wiped out in judgment. And those that were in the ark who were prepared, who were watching, were ready, and they were saved, they were delivered, they survived through the judgment of the flood. Question, what kind of judgment was that? Temporal or eternal? Temporal. have to make a distinction here. I'll bring this out in a minute. But when often we talk about judgment in the same sentence and use it in two different ways. That gets confusing. That came up in one of my conversations this last week. That, uh, And I'll bring that out as we get there. So Matthew 24, 42 states the primary issue here. Watch, therefore... For you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Now that word hour is again used in verse 43. Now verse 43, which I'll put on the screen in just a minute, verse 43 makes a contrast. It says, but know this. Now you should circle the word but at the beginning of verse 43 because that tells you that verse 43 is integrally related to verse 42. In other words, you can't slice 43 and 44 off and talk about them independently because the thoughts in 43 to 44 come out of 36 to 42 because of that word but. That's what it tells us. So uh, they are uh, they're told to watch. So this word watch is then used again in verse 43. Now verse 43 introduces a brief parable, the parable of the homeowner. And the parable of the homeowner uh, says in verse 43, But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched. See, the parable of the homeowner is directly related to the command of 42, which is the command that grows out of verse 36. Now, how does verse 36 begin? Look in your Bible. But of that day and hour, no one knows. What does that uh, but tell you? Well, it's translated wrongly there, so you'd make a mistake if you were looking in the English. In the Greek, it's peri-day, which indicates a in some places a contrast, and people will make a big deal about this. That peri day means uh, now concerning, and it's shifting the topic completely. So now we're going to talk about the rapture. And usually, at least the places that I've looked, they always cite, and it's well known that Paul uses peri day that way in in First Corinthians. But he, Matthew doesn't use peri day that way. It's just a very very soft shift transition to the next thing. It's not much different from just just but or the next thing. It's not a hard contrast uh, of of term, I mean, of, of of content. But because that peri day is there, it throws us back to verses thirty two to thirty five, and 
verse 32 begins, now learn the parable of the fig tree. That grows out of what goes before. So you can't just isolate these things. That's the point I'm making. And once you do, then you're going to run into some, some problems understanding it. And then the third verse that I have up there, verse uh, 13 of chapter 25, is the application of the parable of the ten virgins. Jesus says, watch therefore... For you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, no, I want you to notice that if the parable of the homeowner in 43 to 44 is continuing the idea of watching in verse 42, then that idea of watching carries all the way through the parable of the ten virgins. Why is Jesus telling that story? To tell them to watch. That's what he's been talking about since verse 42, which is the application of verse 36. So you can't separate the parable of the ten virgins from the entire context of at least 36 and following it, and that even goes back further. So that's that connects all of these things together. So that generation that is warned... Uh, are, that generation is warned that they can only know that the time is near, and they cannot know the day or the hour. So see, we see that the parable of the homeowner is designed to reinforce the command to watch. Now that homeowner parable is very important, <clears throat> and because it is saying that if the master of the house, if the homeowner, had known when the thief would come, so you're at home, if you knew that you were going to get broken into at 2 at 30 in the morning, what would you do? You would be prepared. Some of you would be sitting there with your shotgun in the dark. Some of you would be sitting there with your phone there ready to call 911. Others would have whatever other weapon of choice would be. But the point is that you would be prepared. That's the point of this analogy is not so much the sudden and unexpectedness of the arrival of the thief. Certainly that's there. But the point that Jesus is getting at, if you know when the thief is coming, you'll be prepared. What does he say earlier? You can't know precisely when Jesus is coming at the second coming, but you can know generally because of the signs of the leaves in the fig tree. You can know generally Jesus is coming so you can be prepared. So the contrast that gets set up here is between those who are prepared and who watch versus those who aren't prepared and don't watch. And we'll see that all the way through the three parables that we're talking about, wicked and righteous servant, the ten virgins, and the parable of the talents. So that's the point of this thief imagery, and it's used the same way in Revelation 16:15, which comes right at the end of the, uh, or at the time of the seventh bowl judgment. It is almost the time when Jesus is coming back. And so there's this warning, this challenge to those who are still alive to hang in there. But you still don't know exactly when he's coming. Behold, Jesus said, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So there's a warning there using that two terms, the thief and watching, and that that is true for the generation that is there right at the end of the tribulation. So... That application from Matthew 24 is very clear. Therefore, you also be ready. That's the conclusion of the parable of the thief. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. 
Now, that word ready is very important. It's the word atoimus in the Greek, which means to be ready, to be prepared. It can refer to a state of readiness or preparation. So the purpose of that parable of the of the homeowner is to encourage the believers at the end of the tribulation to be ready. It's used again at the end of Matthew 20, uh, of the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25.10, that while they, that is the five foolish or stupid virgins, uh, went out to buy the bridegroom came and those who were ready. So that's telling us that the purpose of that parable has to do with preparation and being ready, which connects us right back to the first that 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 parable of the of the homeowner so what we see here is that all of these string together like a string of pearls and you can't take them out all the these words are the thread the string that that connect all the all the pearls so it tells us that the parable of the ten virgins on this basis connects back to the parable of the homeowner Then we see that the three parables that grow out of the parable of the homeowner, the three parables are therefore about Jews during the tribulation, not Gentiles or church-age believers. So those are the three basic views here. There's a view that this relates to the Jews during the tribulation. That's the view of Dr. Pentecost, the view of Dr. Toussaint. I think that's a correct view. There's a view that it relates to Gentiles at the end of the tribulation. That's Dr. Fruchtenbaum's view. And there's a view that it refers to church-age believers, and that's the view of Bob Wilkin and Jody Dillo and a number of people with the Grace Evangelical Society. I think that's got a lot of flaws contextually, and they miss miss a number of different points. What's interesting is uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum's view is that Verses uh, 38 to 40 in Matthew 24, the, or excuse me, 38 to 42, talking about the two men in the field, one's taken, the other left. He takes that as the rapture. But then when you get to the thief parable and the subsequent parables, he takes that as the end of the tribulation for Gentile believers, not Jews. Now, his, he has two arguments for that. And I want to just just address these. Now, I, I love Arnold, but I disagree with him on this. And but I benefit greatly from from his ministry. He says, first of all, he says we we have to recognize that the only surviving Jews at the end of the tribulation are believers. Hmm. What's your support for that? And he said, Zechariah thirteen. Zechariah 13 says, It shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, This is my people. The Lord is my God. The key thing here is that word land. It's the word arts. And we talk about Eretz Israel, which is the land of Israel. You talk about uh, Eretz Mitzrayim, which is the land of Egypt. But you can also talk about that God created the heavens and the Eretz in Genesis 1-1, where it refers to the whole earth. So how do you distinguish it? Well, if you look in context in what's going on in Zechariah 13, it's talking about 
how how God how God is going to rescue those in Judah and Jerusalem. Remember, those in Judah and Jerusalem are told to flee to the mountains when they see the abomination of desolation. In Zechariah twelve and thirteen, it's also focusing on Judah and Jerusalem. And though there are a couple of places where it's clear the word Eretz has to refer to the whole earth. It also is used in these passages to refer to the land, and that's how it's translated. New King James Version, Arnold's favorite version, the ASV 1901, translates it the land in contrast to the whole earth. And I think this is the point here, is that as the Antichrist armies are surrounding Jerusalem, that two-thirds of those Jews that are left in Jerusalem are going to be massacred. But one-third, that is the believers, are going to be rescued because they follow the prescriptions to and, and escape. So there's this two-thirds that are going to cut off and die. Daniel 12 talks about God bringing this judgment on them. And the one-third that lives are those that survive in Jerusalem. It's not talking about the rest of the world. So when we understand that, I think that it's clear that that you you also have unbelieving Jews that survive the tribulation and and the rest of the world, not just uh, not just there. I also think that that there's an issue with the word judgment. Uh, there are those who contend that well, Israel gets judged during the tribulation. That's a judgment on them. Why would God judge them again in these three parables? That's because the judgment that occurs in the tribulation is a temporal judgment. The judgment that is spoken of at the end of each of these parables where one is assigned to the lake of fire and the other goes to heaven is a judgment related to eternal destiny. So so we have to be careful. We often use the word judgment for both, but one is talking about a temporal discipline on the nation. The other is talking about uh, individual judgment in relation to eternal eternal destiny. So we look at our uh, four questions here. We come to understand that these three parables are therefore about Jews during the tribulation, not Gentiles or church-age believers. So that's just the first review. That took me about 35 minutes, which is about what I thought it would take. Now, that sets us up for under, being able to understand what is coming up next. And so we have to ask the question, what's the connection of Matthew 25, 1 to 13 with the previous parable of the wicked and righteous servant and the parable that comes up? In the first of these three parables, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. Now, you remember that what I said last time was that that this relates to Israel. Israel is referred to again and again in the Old Testament as the servant of Yahweh, or the slave of Yahweh. Those terms can are inter, uh, interchangeable, servant or slave. And he's made one group of these is made ruler over another group. And part of what they're going to do is feed them. So this is talking about the spiritual leadership over Israel who's set over them, and some of them are good, and they are faithful servants, and they are faithful shepherds, as Ezekiel describes them. Others are not, like the Pharisees in the first first century. But they're described by two different terms here. The first term for faithful is the word on the left, pistos, which means faithful or reliable or trustworthy. 
And they are also described as wise, phronimos, uh, which means wise. It also has the idea of being, being sensible, being intelligent. And so you have these two words. Now, what's interesting is Matthew 25:21, which is in the parable of the talents, talks about those who were given talents and used them wisely were called faithful servants. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you a ruler over many things. So the parable we look at next time on the talents is going to talk about and develop the idea of being a faithful servant. Remember, you have two words, faithful and wise, in Matthew 25:40, Matthew 24:45. Faithful is developed in the parable of the talents. Wise is developed in the parable of the ten virgins. And so... They're identified as being wise, using the same word phronimos in verses 4, 8, and 9. See, if you just look at the vocabulary in this language in the, in the original, you see how the writer gives you all these different connections. Now, all of this together shows that everything from at least verse 30 on has to be held as one event. Now, I think that's, that's important. Because you can't come along and talk about verses uh, 37 to 41, the days of Noah, the one taken, the one left behind. You can't take that out and say that's talking about the rapture and everything else is talking about the second coming. You have to, it, It's all one or it's all the other. You can't break it apart because of these connections that are there uh, in the text. So as I pointed last time in that parable, a righteous and wicked servant, the master is Jesus who goes away on a journey to heaven. The slaves or servants are God's, are Israel, God's people, one group, uh, the, the, those who are, and it's talking about those who are placed over them, the faithful and wise are the good leaders, and the evil servants are the Pharisees in Jesus' generation, and evil servants, the bad religious leaders in the tribulation period. That parable also concluded with this statement that I brought up at the end, that those who are wicked are assigned a portion with the hypocrites. Hypocrites, as I pointed out last time, always refers to the religious leaders, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, and so this this and they're unbelievers. So this has to be contrasting believer and unbeliever. Another point is, if you go back to Jewish literature, wise versus foolish is always, especially when you look at the Psalms and wisdom literature, that, that reflect, really reflects believer and unbeliever. The what has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool. Okay, so this this is the, the contrast here. Again, it shows that we're not talking about carnal believers versus spiritual believers. We're talking about unbelievers versus believers. And this is seen again in this phrase, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sometimes in several of these passages, it's also associated with outer darkness. And Stan Toussaint in his uh, book, Behold the King, which is based on his doctoral dissertation, states invariably throughout Matthew, this phrase refers to the retribution of those who are judged before the millennial kingdom is established. They're not allowed to go into the kingdom. They are unbelievers. There's a judgment on them. Matthew 18.12, Matthew 13.42 and 50, Matthew 22.13, and Matthew 
30. I'm not going to go through each of those passages. That's a judgment for unbelievers. And I said, for anybody to say, I feel very strongly about this. I said this last week. I'll repeat it again. I think it's heresy to say that believers are going to be cut in two and cast into a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's going to be remorse at the judgment seat of Christ, but this is punishment that goes far beyond simply remorse because we didn't do well. So, who do the ten uh, virgins now represent into our parable? Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And what we see here is a background that this is a comparison uh, with a common cultural event, which is what takes place at a at a wedding. And so the kingdom of heaven is now compared to a specific section within the entire uh, wedding. And I'll get into that in just a minute. So you have the ten virgins, and it, they, t- take, they take their lamps, and they go out to meet the bridegroom the br- and the uh, procession as he's coming to uh, get the bride. It begins with the word tate in the Greek, which, as we've seen all through Matthew 24, just says, and the next thing. And so it's it's connects it to the previous parable. So we not only have similar vocabulary, we have a connective at the beginning that ties them together. You can't just take the parable out on its own to understand it. Now, there's two options here as to how the virgins are understood. One view is that the virgins represent the church. This is mostly based on arguments from silence because some things are not mentioned in the text. And um, and it's also based on the idea that the church is introduced by the rapture in 2440 to 41. We've already demonstrated that to be to be false. Although it is not stated in the Parable, and I think, but I think the implication is there. If the, uh, the 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 bridesmaids are not the church, because in a marriage analogy that we have in Scripture, Jesus is the bridegroom. Who's the bride? The church is the bride of Christ, not the bridegroom. Now, that's not your strongest argument, but I think that is that is necessarily true, even though that is not something brought out or emphasized uh, in the text. I think generally that is that is true, though. The second view is that this is Israel in the tribulation, and that's based on context. Now, of course, I dealt with Arnold's view, which is that it's Gentiles in the tribulation, and I, I don't go along with that. But the other view is that it's Israel in the tribulation. This is based on the context we've just gone through, and that the subject all through here is Israel at the time of the coming king and the kingdom. So we have this opening statement, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to the ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So what's the distinction between the two groups of five? What's the distinction between these two groups of five? What are they what are they called? And I think this is important to see this this distinction. Now five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. 
As I've already pointed out, wise versus foolish is typical in wisdom literature in the Old Testament, believer versus unbeliever. The five of them who are wise, this is phronimos, which means wise. They're prudent. I think the NASB translates that as prudent. Uh, It also means intelligent or discerning. They understand what's going on, and they're going to be prepared. On the other hand, you have five who are foolish. This is not a complimentary term. It means foolish or stupid or they lack sense, and numerous commentators just call them the stupid virgins. That may sound a little harsh to some ears, but that's basically what the text says. Moros is where we get our word moron. So you've got the morons and the wise. Now, as we go through the outline here, those who are foolish, we come to the question of who are they? What distinguishes them? This is important. Those who are foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. So in this fifth question, we're, we're asking what is the oil, um, or what's the difference between them, the foolish and the wise? And the foolish took their lamps and they took no oil with them, and the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Now, if you just stop there, you'd think that one has oil and one doesn't. And that has led some people to the erroneous conclusion that the oil represents the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is there, then that that's, means they're church-age believers. That is really common, even if they don't take the church-age believer position. They think that, but, but the text never makes that point. In fact, the point that is made in the parable that we see down uh, at the end, is to watch, therefore. That's the whole point of this parable, is to watch. It's to be prepared. So, verses 3 and 4 says you have the, the, the morons take their lamps. They don't have oil with them. Now, we're going to see they did have oil in their lamps, but they didn't have any extra oil. The wise have oil, and they had uh, in their vessels. Now, the word vessel there refers to something like a flask. So, the uh, little oil lamp doesn't carry a whole lot, so they were wise and they took extra. We know that because in verse 8 we read, And the foolish, the morons, said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. That indicates that they were all, they were going. They were burning, but they're beginning to sputter. So those who are foolish take their lamps. Uh, the, the morons had no lamps and no extra oil. The wise have have oil and an extra flask of oil. Now then the bridegroom is delayed. And when the bridegroom is delayed, they they all eventually fall asleep. So it's not an issue. The sleeping thing is watching isn't as much an issue that's being brought out here because uh, it is making the obvious statement that, that they all fell asleep. So what we see is that both groups have oil to begin with, and they all fall asleep, and then the bridegroom comes, and it's a surprise. Now, I want to address this issue of, is the oil the Holy Spirit? There's a couple of little problems with this. First of all, what happens when they uh, come up and they trim their lamps. See, this is what happens next. There's midnight, a cry is heard. Now, there are, there's a couple of ministries that capitalize on this, and they call themselves the midnight cry. 
This is the rapture. This is not the rapture. This is the second coming. Just, but you'll, you'll hear that term. And there's a, there's a cry, and it's just part of the story. Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. And so all the virgins then arise and they trim their lamps. So they all have been asleep. They all wake up. They all trim the wicks in their lamps so they'll burn better and burn brightly. And oops, the morons, the foolish, say to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. Okay, now if the Holy Spirit is the oil, then first of all, the morons have the Holy Spirit to begin with. And that doesn't fit the context. Second, they're getting a diminishing amount of the Holy Spirit, and that doesn't work because the Holy Spirit doesn't diminish. You don't start losing him. And third, you can't buy the Holy Spirit. Simon Magus in Acts 8.18 tried that. Remember, after watching Peter heal somebody, it's, can, I, can I buy this? Can I buy the Holy Spirit? So this is not talking about the Holy Spirit at all. The issue is preparedness, and that's exactly what we see when we get to verses 9 and 10. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should be not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. You can't buy the Holy Spirit. So it, it just doesn't fit within the context at all. So they left to buy. And while they're gone, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. What's the point? The point is they were ready. Now, what happens in the wedding customs of Jesus' day, uh, prior to the wedding itself, an invitation would be sent to those who were invited to the wedding feast. This would, of course, include those who were part of the of the uh, wedding party. Uh, the bridegroom would return after uh, from the house of the bride in a procession and then lead a procession to his own home where a wedding banquet would be enjoyed. So they don't know when the bridegroom is going to actually come back to collect them, to take them to the wedding banquet. The word there uh, that has to do with the wedding doesn't just refer to the ceremony itself. It refers to the whole wedding banquet. Now, the wedding banquet is a picture not of the beginning of the kingdom, but enjoying the blessings of and joy and celebration that extends throughout the whole kingdom. So we're not talking about just the beginning. We're talking about enjoying the feast, which which represents in Scripture the entire entire kingdom. And so we have this issue here. Those who are ready go into the wedding feast, and the door shut. That means nobody else can get in. They're locked out. Now, there's a really extreme view among some people, and that is that this relates to carnal Christians and they're kept out of the kingdom. They go to some sort of Christian purgatory. They can't come into the kingdom at all. And they go through weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth for a thousand years. I think that is an absolutely absurd, heretical view. So the issue is those who are ready are believers. And they go into the wedding and then uh, the door is shut. So... The judgment then comes, and this occurs at the end. He says, I, uh, uh, afterward, the other virgins came also. That's the five. 
says, Lord, Lord, open to us. Verse 12, but he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch there, and then the application comes. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, what's interesting there is we have a textual problem. Uh, the phrase in which the Son of Man is coming is not found in the older manuscripts or some of the early church fathers. But it is found in many other church fathers, and it's found in the majority of manuscripts. And I tend to go with it. And the rule of thumb you'll get from the um, uh, the side who translates the New American Standard in NET is that, well, it's redundant to what's already stated. I don't find that convincing because I find the Bible redundant in numerous places to reinforce the point. And the point, I think, here is that they, we have to be prepared for the coming of the Son of Man. Now, as I said, this is addressed to a generation at the end of the tribulation to be prepared for the coming of the kingdom. Those who are prepared will enter into the kingdom. Those who are not prepared will be taken in judgment. That fits the whole analogy back in Matthew 24, uh, 37 to 42. But there's an implication of that. Sometimes I draw a distinction between application and implication. The only people that can directly apply this are going to be those in the tribula- at the end of the tribulation. But there's an implication there for all of us, and that is just as there is an uncertainty as to exactly when the rapture will occur, I mean, just as there's an uncertainty about when the second coming is going to occur, there's an uncertainty about when the rapture is going to occur. As they have to be ready, we have to be ready. Now, what do you have to do to be ready? You have to trust in Christ as your Savior. That's the only way you have the right wedding garments. Going back to the um, parable in Matthew 20, that's the only way you have the right wedding garments, the righteousness of Christ, to go into the kingdom, the wedding feast, and to celebrate the kingdom. The issue is not Christian life here. The issue is whether or not you have trusted in Jesus as the Messiah. And so at the end of the tribulation, it is important for the Jews who survive that those who are going to go into the kingdom have trusted in Yeshua as Mashiach. In the church age, it's important to trust in Jesus as the Messiah, that he died on the cross for our sins, so that when the rapture occurs, we are raptured and we don't go in to the tribulation period. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to reflect upon the truth of your word. Father, we're thankful that we are saved by grace and not by works, that the way to avoid the tribulation and to go into heaven when we die is to believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins and by his work and his work alone and by simply trusting alone in his work, we have eternal life. Father, we're thankful that this is seen as a pattern and it's the same pattern at the end of the tribulation that those who wish to go into the kingdom have to be prepared by accepting Jesus as Messiah. So, Father, we pray that if there's anyone listening to this message, that they would do that which is necessary in this church age to trust in you to believe. And this is done not by uttering a prayer, but by simply believing in our hearts.
heart, in our soul. The instant we believe, God knows what we're trusting in, and we're immediately saved. He doesn't have to be informed by a prayer. If we believe, we believe. And God in his omniscience knows that we believe. Father, we pray that we will be challenged, because not only should we be ready in terms of our justification, but we should be ready in terms of our spiritual life and spiritual growth, knowing that after the rapture we will go through the judgment seat of Christ, and we need to be prepared. And we do that by living the Christian life and walking by the Spirit. Now, Father, we thank you for what we've learned today, and we pray that God the Holy Spirit will make it clear to us that we can apply it in our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.